นะโอทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโอทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโอทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังขังนมัสสามิ I thought I would begin with the um, uh, passage that I, one of the passages I referred to yesterday, um, the dialogue between uh, the Buddha and the Brahmin Dona uh, about the, uh, the the Buddha's own nature. Um, so this is the book is the second edition of the Island uh, teachings on the Nibbana put together by Lumpur Alpasanna and myself. And uh, this comes at the beginning of chapter 10, the unapprehendability of the enlightened. At one time, the Blessed One was traveling by the road between Ukata and Setavya, and the Brahmin Dona was traveling by that road too. He saw in the Blessed One's footprints wheels with a thousand spokes and with rims and hubs all complete. Then he thought, it's wonderful, it's marvelous. Surely this can never be the footprint of a human being. And the Blessed One left the road and sat down at the, at the root of a tree, cross-legged, with his body held erect and mindfulness established before him. Then the Brahmin Dona, who was following up the footprints, saw him sitting at the, at the root of the tree. The Blessed One inspired trust and confidence, his faculties being stilled, his mind quiet, and attained to supreme control and serenity. A royal tusker, like a great elephant. A royal tusker. Uh, self-controlled and guarded by restraint of the sense faculties. Also, the word naga, which means dragon, also sometimes is used to refer to a great being and also to elephants. So uh, the Buddha is sometimes known as a naga, or, and so being referred to as an elephant is a compliment in this respect. A royal tusker, tusks of the long uh, teeth that come out of the the elephant's mouth. A royal tusker, self-controlled and guarded by restraint of the sense faculties. The Brahmin went up to him and asked, Sir, are you a god? No, Brahmin. Sir, are you a heavenly angel? No, Brahmin. Sir, are you a spirit? No, Brahmin. Sir, are you a human being? No, Brahmin. And the Pali for that is, Na ko ahang brahmana manuso bhavisamiti, which literally means that... Uh, that uh, whereby I might be known as a human being, Brahmin, that does not exist. That that uh, uh, is not bhavisamiti. Um, uh, it, it hasn't come into being. It doesn't come into being. Then, sir, what indeed are you? Brahmin, the defilements by means of which, through my not having abandoned them, I might be a god, or a heavenly angel, like a Brahma or a Deva, or a spirit, a, a Yaka, or a human being, have been abandoned by me, cut off at the root, made like a palm stump, done away with, and are no more subject to future arising. Just as a blue or red or white lotus is born in water, grows in water, and stands up above the water untouched by it, so too I, who was born in the world and grew up in the world, have transcended the world, and I live untouched by the world. Remember me as one who is awakened. And the Pali for that is Budhoti Mang Brahmana Tareti. So you can also say, hold me as one who is awakened. So Tareti is to hold, like Sila Dara, one who holds the, the precepts. Tareti, you can hold me, remember me as one who is awakened. So just for your information, that's uh, from the Anguttara Nikaya, Book of the Fours, Sutta number 36. So, back to catastrophe, apostrophe. So we'd reached um, the description of the um, process of dependent origination uh, up to uh, link number four. So this is links five to seven, Salayatana Pasa Vedana. The next three links refer to the establishment of the perceptual process. The process of the six sense spheres, salayatana, 
being reified, that means made solid or real, uh, true, and activated. Uh, sal, uh, it comes from the word for six, and ayatana is uh, the, the, the sense spheres or sense, um, uh, say, uh, activities. This means the mind gives more reality to the field of perceptions. The world of sight and sound and flavor and smell and touch, and touch comes alive, and also thought, and becomes far more tangible. From the activation of the senses, sense contact, pasa, feeling, or more accurately, sensation, vedana arises, along with the impression that there is an I who is doing the feeling. Having established the subject-object relationship, when there is an impact through one of the senses, when the mind, or, or I, uh, in this case, perceives an object or hears a sound, that contact very quickly gives rise to a feeling, a sensation that is pleasant, painful, or neutral, that a separate I seems to be experiencing. This process happens extremely quickly, from the moment of there being ignorance, not seeing clearly, to the moment of a feeling and a feeler arising. When feeling has arisen, this is where the trouble can begin in a substantial way, because if there is ignorance, not seeing clearly, then the mind attaches to those feelings, liking or disliking or neutral. That attachment then very quickly feeds the next three links of the process. It's also interesting in terms of the, the physiology of perception, how um, uh, it, it uh, works in our, um, our brains according to the sort of physical structures that we have, so that, that when, when we hear a sound or, or uh, perceive a visual object, uh, often the, the, the system can react, there can be a, um, uh, a, sort of a reflex process that operates before thought. So if a, a, an object is moving quickly towards you, then you find that you are, you're moving out of the way even before there's a thought, well, there's something coming at me. So that the, the eye is perceiving the light and the, the, it goes into the visual cortex and there's a perception of, of danger, get out, get out the way, even before that's uh, registered as a conscious thought. And so that, uh, also in the, um, uh, that book I brought yesterday, the, um, uh, the book by Venerable Nyanananda, Concept and Reality, he talks a lot about uh, papancha, conceptual proliferation, and uh, also that, um, derives a lot of that from the um, Sutta number 18 of the Middle Length Discourses, the Madhu Pindika Sutta. And in that Sutta, it, it spells out quite, quite uh, clearly in a very, very similar way the process of, of perception and feeling, how that operates. So there's the sense organs, so the eye, and then the, the visual object, the rupa, and then the um, the uh, eye consciousness, as the, the light so sort of hits the eye from the object, then eye consciousness uh, arises, and the coming together of those three, the uh, the sense organ, the object, and the consciousness arising from the impact of the object, then that creates pasa. The coming together of those three creates contact, sense contact, pasa, and then pasa conditions feeling, vedana, and in that sutta, uh, then the, the, the Buddha, in, uh, in, well, it's uh, Venerable Mahakachana is actually describing it in that sutta. Uh, then that feeling then conditions um, perception, the sanya. So it's like there's a feeling even before the mind is registered. There's a there's a, an object coming towards me. There's a, the feeling precedes the designation. The, the word sanya is like related to the English word sign or, or designation or de designation. Uh, so that even before there's the, the recognition of, uh, uh, or, or, or the conscious perception, and, and, in, and certainly before thought, then there's that uh, attractive, unattractive, dangerous, um, uh, uh, yeah, desirable, or neutral, that those things are, are registered at a very, very basic fundamental level. So in that Madhupindaka Sutta, the, the, the Honeyball Sutta, then it uh, uh, points out then contact conditions, feeling, feeling conditions, uh, the sanya, the perception, and the sanya conditions vitaka, which is a thought, like, oh, there is something coming at me. It's like a conceptual thought, a verbal thought that, that uh, spells it out. But the, the feeling is, uh, is operating on a, on a, uh, a level sort of very, very primal, very basic, and uh, would be something that's, uh, say, derived from our... Um, our animal ancestry and what's helped our ancestors to survive. So 
to the point where where we got we got born, and so that um, that um, uh, the process that's described here in dependent origination, these particular teachings, is also reflecting that that there's the the sensation that the vedana uh, is uh, following along immediately from contact, and then in this instance it talks about that then conditioning craving. Um, doesn't sort of spell out the the uh, other aspects of, of perception and thinking, but uh, it, it, the the processes are are, are very uh, sort of describing very very similar areas. So it's helpful to understand, particularly when we use the word vedana and it's translated as feeling. It's not talking about emotion. It's, it's uh, in a way it's talking about that rudimentary, basic, non-conceptual, non-verbal sensation. So uh, that, uh, or just like if you if you touch something hot, then your hand will will um, withdraw from the, the hot object, like my wood burning stove in my kuti. <laughs> Before the thought arises, oh, that's hot. <laughs> it's like oh, you know the, the hand uh, uh, ref- in a reflex uh, protects way of protecting the body. It, it it pulls away from the the hot or the, the painful object. Any thoughts, questions? Yes. Vedana, you mean only physical, not not mental? Uh, yeah, generally, Vedana, um, it, the word sensation is more accurate than feeling, really. But feeling is a very, very common translation. So the Vedana uh, almost always just refers to the physical sensation. So when we talk about a... Um, an emotion, like feeling happy, feeling unhappy, feeling comfortable, feeling uncomfortable, those would all be in the Sankara um, zone rather than in the Vedana zone. In my understanding of how the word Vedana is used. So it's gen- almost always just used to refer to a physical sensation. So it's a narrower meaning of the word than the English word feeling, which can cover you know, the emotions and... Uh, as well as sensations. There is uh, always Vedana, according to Abhidhamma, always present. So there is always a physical feeling, always present. If you've got a body. Even in uh, stages of uh, uh, concentration, like Borjan. Uh, um, well, the, the, uh, in these, the, when the mind is is very um, powerfully or completely absorbed in concentration, then there can be a um, uh, uh, not registering the, any of the sensations of the body. But uh, I don't have personal experience of that degree of concentration myself. But um, uh, even up to, to fourth jhana, if you read the descriptions of the of the the Buddha's um, say when he's talking about the, the states of, of jhana, first, second, third, fourth jhana, there's still the uh, the perceptions of the body are, are there in the mixture. It's only when the mind is is absorbed into the what are called the arupa jhanas, the formless jhanas, then the the concentration is is so refined, then uh, the uh, perception of the body and its sensations. Um, according to the, the teachings, as I understand them, that that doesn't register that the uh, the attention is is so so focused on a on a uh, a mental object that uh, the perceptions of the body have vanished altogether. That's why people who who can enter arupa jhana can can sit and meditate for you know a week or t- a month without moving. In uh, the fourth jhana, do, you don't uh, observe the breath anymore. De- uh, depends on the person. You can. Yeah. My understanding of it is uh, is that the um, the perceptions of the of the body are still part of the mixture. I mean, it depends what the attention is is say focused upon, but um, the 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 framework of the of the experiences, the 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 the, um, the sensations of the body can still be attended to. According to Abhidhamma, there is always is um, always Vedana, in, in, even in the Arupajana. If it says so, uh, I've never studied Abhidhamma, so I couldn't say. Uh, probably it's feeling, uh, men- 
it, it could be. Um, the uh, it, it, it depends how you categorize Vedana. My my understanding, or the way my teachers have always used it, is referring to physical sensation um, rather than mood or emotional tone. Um, the um, certainly the, the the most profound level of concentration, the nirodha samapti, is called the cessation of perception and feeling. So it's definitely not present there. But anyway, I mean, it's uh, it's it's a bit academic because I mean, personally, no, I don't. Last, the last one, no. Nirodha samapati is literally means the cessation of perception and feeling. Oh, I'm sorry. Nirodha samapati. That means the cessation of perception and feeling. So I would say, by definition, there there, there wouldn't be any feeling present there. But again, I, I haven't ever studied Abhidharma, so I can't speak with any any uh, knowledge or authority in in that area. So, okay. Anagarika Margit, you had a question? Because um, it just came to my mind. I saw somewhere in the suttas it's talked about 108 kinds of feelings. So the yes. Buddha describes 108 kinds of feelings, which includes also mental painful feelings, something like that. So I think I've read it somewhere. Uh, it could be. Um, the uh, the Bahu Vedanaya Sutta, the many kinds of feeling, if I remember. I, I, um, yeah, I, I couldn't list what they all are, but he, it starts off with the, two of his disciples having an argument where one of them says, the, the Buddha said, there's only two kinds of feeling, pleasant and painful, and the other one says, no, 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 no there's three kinds of feeling, the pleasant, painful, and neutral, and they, they're clashing with each other. And then they go to ask the Buddha, and he said, yes, well, I said there's two kinds of feeling, I said there's three kinds of feeling, I said there's there's uh, six kinds of feeling, there's 18 kinds of feeling, there's 36 kinds of feeling, there are 108 kinds of feeling. And he and he uh, then uses it as a, a opportunity to say he talks about things in different ways at different times in different situations. But I can't say I've memorized the, all the what the hundred and eight varieties would be. So it's a very thin slices of the the pie. Yeah. Eight, uh, uh, mental and uh, uh, physical. So uh, it's pleasant and unpleasant. Okay, so to, to carry on. So the process is growing from a simple root, like a tree, slowly rising, branching, branching and branching, getting more and more diversified and multifarious, spread out and involved. A verse in the Tao Te Ching says, The way gives rise to the one, the one gives rise to the two, the two gives rise to three, and from the three arise all ten thousand things. So not referring to Abhidhamma, but I'll drift into the Tao Te Ching there. It's a very broad, non-academic approach towards the teacher Samuppada. These are mostly from different talks given at different situations, different times, to different groups of people. Out of the way... uh, out of suchness, there arises oneness, then twoness, then threeness, and once you've got three, then you've got the ten thousand things. As the mind absorbs into perception of a form, then life appears more and more complex. Once we have a belief in the reality of the sense world, then all the feelings of pleasure and pain, like and dislike, start to arise and become stronger, more interesting and compelling. You know, many people, many objects, many sounds, many tangible uh, objects, flavors of the this extraordinary chocolate. It's been brewed up this evening with a delicious chocolate drink. So that the the ten thousand things is a way of uh, in the this in the Chinese languaging of 
of um, uh, of say spiritual teachings. That's the, the 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 many many objects of the experiential field. So that's a tanha salayatna pasavedana. The that's the the process of perception and feeling of taking shape and gaining solidity. Then we go on to the the next section, links eight to ten, tanha upadana bhava. The next three links are tanha, upadana, and bhava. Tanha is craving, upadana is clinging, and bhava is becoming. That's a description of the outflowing intensity of the mind. As a feeling of liking that grows into, ooh, that's really great, then I'll have more of that. This happens very quickly. This is a description of the mind latching onto a particular sensation and then absorbing into it. It's like climbing onto a train and setting off from the station. This is where the experience of suffering really gets launched. In the second noble truth, the Buddha said that craving, tanha, is to be let go of, pahatabhanti, that is in the Pali. That connection between feeling and craving is, accordingly, seen as the key point, the weakest link in the chain. And there'll be more to say on that as we as we go along in the in the book. But that's uh, say a, a, uh, because the, the Buddha highlights that in the, the Four Noble Truths, when he talks about the cause of dukkha, the, the cause of that spiritual uh, illness of, of uh, dukkha, that the cause is tanha, is craving. So uh, there's different, way, uh, different ways you can approach it, but rather than talking about ignorance at that point, because tanha, is the, that craving, is the most sort of tangible and, and visible, knowable, um, sort of immediate cause, then that's what the, the Buddha focuses on in the Four Noble Truths. And then in the more complete or, or un, un subtle, uh, detailed teaching, he spells out avijja as what's, uh, ignorance is what's helped contribute to that, that um, uh, experience of craving. But sort of craving is the, the, the kind of the key point. That's where the trouble really begins. And so within the forest tradition, um, not just with, with Lumpur Cha, but many of the, the forest ajans, that's a, a very, very common focus of the teaching, is to develop mindfulness around feeling, around, around Vedana, and using um, feeling, and seeing how, how repeatedly and easily feeling conditions craving, trying to get something that, that you like, trying to get away from something that you dislike, and that mindfulness of feeling, and seeing how feeling easily moves into to craving, that's the uh, often stresses you keep your keep your attention on that that's where you, we can really make a difference that's the sort of um, key uh, area of, uh, of Dhamma practice and it's also one of the reasons why um, uh, say in the forest tradition training our, our lives then there's what we call the Dutangas or the Tudang practices the austere practices they're designed to uh, their, their ways of simplifying your life, like just having one meal a day rather than eating a, a breakfast or, or having other more than one meal in a day, or um, having a a, a, um, a very simple living place, just living under a tree, or just um, only living on the food that you get given in the village on the alms round, um, and uh, such things. That uh, their ways of simplifying your life in a radical way. Yeah, which are likely to bring more discomfort. So the Buddha was against the kind of self-torture and self-mortification, the kind of deliberately uh, harming yourself like many of the yogic traditions of his time were engaged in, like standing on one leg for 40 years or, or you know, eating three rice grains uh, a day for, uh, and so on. So the Buddha didn't um, uh, give permission for those kind of destructive, um, austere practices. He tried that himself and turned his back on it. But he did allow the Dutangas, which are based upon the simplification of one's life, and they're aimed at those very instinctual areas. Food, sleep, comfort, and personal space. You know, even saying the words, it's like, don't you dare <laughs> keep away from my patch, you know. But, uh, so that, those are very uh, primal sort of... Um, reptile brain areas, food, sleep, comfort, and personal space. And so that uh, the Dutangas are all around, you're not choosing your food or having a very limited access to food, just eating once a day, or eating what lands in your bowl on the arms round, 
um, comfort so that one of the Dutangas is just having the three robes uh, and, and, and just making do with, with, with uh, the three basic robes for a, for a bhikkhu. Um, and then, uh, or in terms of a dwelling, just living under a tree, not living in a, in a kuti or a building, just uh, living at the root of a tree. Um, sleep, uh, not lying down, uh, to just use three postures instead of four. So sitting, standing, walking, no lying down. Um, which teaches you a lot about weariness <laughs> and discomfort. You know, I did that for about three years or so. And uh, after a while, there is no comfortable posture, I can assure you. Even, even sitting in a, a padded chair, everything aches. <laughs> so um, so they're, they're not self-destructive, but they, they challenge the habits of seeking refuge or comfort or, or, or pleasure through food, sleep, um, and then uh, personal space and physical comfort, so that um, the Vedana element, <laughs> the attention is brought to that very easily, and how the mind is trying to get uh, uh, get away from uh, unpleasant feeling or unwanted feeling, and so that the um, one of the purposes of that is to help strengthen that the attention on how uh, the the uh, Feeling conditions craving, how tanha condition, uh, uh, vedana conditions tanha. But it's also recognized as the weak because it's so vivid, so clear, and it's also before that process of attachment has got underway, then it's regularly talked about as the weakest link in the chain, or whether, whether the chain of dependent origination can most effectively be, be broken. That is the link to keep attention upon, because once the momentum of obsession builds towards the desired object, it gets harder and harder to recognize what's going on, and thus harder to let go. The pattern of dependent origination thus describes how a feeling, a sensation, turns into a desire, some kind of self-centered craving. Then, how that desire around one particular sight or sound or sense object or thought or emotion leads on to grasping. If an interest arises, the mind latches onto it. We see something that produces a feeling of, oh, that's beautiful. Then the eye is attracted towards it, and it says, oh, I wouldn't mind having one of those. Then the absorption goes further to grasping, upadana. Well, I really would like to have that. It's a truly beautiful thing. Then there's the decision to act upon that. Well, no one's looking. Here it is, a nice little fruit just hanging off the tree, like in the the, the pictures around the, um, the classical image that the basket is full, but the, the hand is reaching for more fruit from the, from the tree. After all, it's only going to drop to the ground and go to waste. This is upandana. Grasping means going after something, taking hold of it. Bhava comes next. This is translated as becoming. It's a word that befuddled me, the word becoming. Uh, it befuddled me. I found it very confusing for years and years. Becoming, becoming, becoming what? What is becoming? Uh, what's this talking about? It took me a long time to realize that becoming means the thrill of getting what you want. There will be more on this later. So yeah, that was uh, when I, I, I heard about this. Because in, in ordinary English, you know, it's becoming. It doesn't have any kind of uh, association of spiritual life or anything un, unwholesome or uh, anything uh, out of the ordinary. So it just seemed like a strange word. But it's one of those Buddhist jargon words that the longer you hang around monasteries and retreat centers, you can't, <laughs> people talk about it, you use it more and more, and you slowly get a sense of, of what it's meaning. And so, uh, and I, I, as I said, I'll, I'll talk about that much more later on. But um, a helpful way of describing it is whether the mind is absorbed in the, um, so the, the promise of some experience, either getting hold of something that that you want, or getting away from something that you, uh, you, d you dislike. And so there's that, you haven't quite got what you want, but you know you're definitely going to get it. That's the, the, the bhava experience. And so that um, that is a, a very powerful force. It's the kind of, it's the fuel source for the consumer culture. And I, I don't know if anyone's involved in advertising here, but <laughs> advertising hinges a lot on feeding that, that becoming tendency, that, that promise. And um, I, I often mention how um, many, many years ago there, it was a, psych, uh, a psychology experiment where they, they um, 
they fixed up a, 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 um, a few people with what they call galvanic skin response um, measurers, so they're little devices they could tell the electrical charge in the skin and levels of excitement and such like. And they sent them shopping. And so these uh, GSR monitors they had, so that they, they and they noticed that the the highest level of excitement and stimulation is when people they were at the counter in the shop and they were get, they were just about to get the thing that they wanted and it hadn't reached their hand yet. That, and that was the moment of maximum excitement when you're, you're definitely going to get the thing that you want, but you haven't quite got it yet. And um, that's the that's the, uh, the the kind of peak moment. And once you've got what you wanted, even that, the, the act of getting it is strangely disappointing. The sort of level of, of focus you know, starts to, to drop even there. And I, uh, I think I also quote later on, there's a, a very interesting passage in... Um, the house at Pooh Corner, Winnie the Pooh, uh, where Pooh, uh, Pooh Bear is very fond of honey, and uh, he's having a conversation with his friend Piglet. Um, again, I realize this is very, very English ref- references here. You know, John Donne might be very English, and Shakespeare might be English, but Winnie the Pooh is even more English. So, um, but there's this passage in, in the house at Pooh Corner where, where Pooh, who's a serious honey addict, Says that eating honey is the best thing in the world, and then and this is this was written in 1927, so I don't think there was many Buddhist teachings around at that time that A. A. Milne could refer to. But then Pooh thought for a moment and said, "No, actually, it's uh, eating honey isn't the best thing. It's that moment just before you eat the honey. That's the best moment." <laughs> so right there, but yeah, that's that's uh, right on the mark. That's exactly how it works. Uh, Pooh Bear. <laughs> so that that because that the, that um, is a very so powerful instinctual promise that you, you you're focused on the object, and then the the world is narrowed to that spot. So the, and the word becoming or bhava refers to that sort of uh, like an intense energy and a focus on that one particular thing that is either desirable or you want to get rid of, you want to get away from that's frightening or that you want to to, uh, to destroy or or, or, or get um, or uh, get away from uh, because it's irritating or uncomfortable uh, pain like a, a painful feeling any questions on that yes I know. and what about the wholesome relations like uh I want to offer down. I have this thought, then I get very excited. So do, do you still go through this same chain of process? Can easily. Uh, cool. Well, there's the the two kinds of. And again, I, I cover that later on in the book. There's two kinds of desire. So the, again, the English word desire covers both of them. But chanda is um, also translatable as interest, enthusiasm. So dhamma chanda, enthusiasm for the dhamma. Um, and so uh, that the, that quality of chanda can be completely wholesome, and it's also it's a necessary condition for uh, do, uh, carrying out any kind of work, any kind of task. So it's a necessary quality. There has to be interest for the mind to engage in any kind of activity. So far from being unwholesome for for any kind of wholesome activity, wholesome work, you need chanda. That's a necessary part of it. But that chanda. If, that, if that's affected by self-view or excitement, agitation, um, then the tanha element sort of sneaks in and, and takes over. So even the desire to offer dana, uh, the desire to to be um, helpful, then if uh, if the mind is holding that in an unskillful way, then it can produce suffering. Like if you really want to offer dana and you're really excited about it and then you've got everything, you've been up all night preparing all the food and you come to the monastery and then three other people have brought dana that day as well. <laughs> Nobody told me. How? And you get angry. I mean, not you necessarily, but one can easily. And that has certainly happened in the past. So, quite a few times <laughs> over the years. So, uh, that... As a, as a wholesome motivation, but because it's like, oh, this is my dana, it's a special day for me, and I really want to, to do this, then that eye-making and mind-making, then Bhava sneaks in and, and can compromise that. There's also um, 
there's a when when the Buddha's talking about realization, uh, when someone has uh, developed a, a great degree of insight, then he makes a point of saying they uh, if they if their mind is overwhelmed by uh, dhamma nandiya dhamma ragena, like the joy of dhamma or the passion for dhamma, then they'll only reach the the level of a of a non-returner. If they're not influenced by dhamma nandiya by and dhamma raga then they'll reach arahantship. So it's like if they're getting overexcited about the level of, of of the development of the practice, then that becomes an obstacle. I mean, it's become being an anagami is not a not to be sneezed at, as they say. <laughs> Another wonderful English expression. Uh, but uh, you know, it's like, dang, I only made it to anagami. <laughs> if that's the worst that your day produces, then yes, it's a good, still a good day, I would say. But that, that's that's quite a common expression that if the mind is overtaken by nandiya uh, nanda is joy, uh, raga is passion. So dhamma raga, so that passion for dhamma, uh, getting excited or, or getting too uh, joyful, like yeah, this is amazing, this is incredible, then that that very exi- excitation is an obstacle, and uh, it um, uh, obstructs the 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 quality of, of realization. So that if uh, if the motivation is chanda and that chanda is free of any kind of um, self-view, any kind of, of attachment or grasping, then it's uh, it's you know, very wholesome and, and beneficial. But uh, seeing how easily that bhavatana vi bhavatana, the desire to become, the desire to get rid of, can can sort of slide into the picture and have its influence then that's a a lot of of our practice and uh, as I I mentioned a few times one of the really really helpful aspects of Lumpur Sumedho's teaching over the the years back in the late 80s and early 90s the early years of Amravati over and over and over again he kept uh, pointing out how Bhavatana Vibhavatana can easily um, sort of influence the way that we approach the, the practice and if if that I want to get concentrated, I need to develop insight. I need to get rid of my defilements. You know, I need to, to get my chattering mind to be quiet. You know, he would point out as long as that that kind of motivation is, I I I've got a chattering mind. I need to get it to shut up. I've not. Uh, I've, I I need to get more insight. I need to get more concentrated. He say, look at that. I have got this. I want to be that. I need to get. Uh, I've got a chattering mind. I need to get rid of that. Bhavatana vi bhavatana. And how, if that's not noticed and appreciated, then even the most sincere and energetic efforts in the practice will keep producing dukkha because right there in the causes of uh, of suffering, you know, bhavatana vibhavatana, the Buddha labels that. So that was so helpful because when we think about craving or desire, often you know, it's like craving for, for food or for you know, comfort or for sensory stimulation and... Uh, you know, and that, that's all in the category of of karma tanha, sense uh, the craving for sense pleasure. And when we think about craving tanha, then often it goes to that. But it's these two subtle uh, sort of outriders, the kind of <laughs> the ones off in the wings, bhava tanha and vibhava tanha. In meditation, they are often the ones that cause the most difficulty, the most trouble, because they can be disguised as me following the instructions. Aren't I supposed to let go of my defilements? Aren't I supposed to be working to help the mind to 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 be quiet? You know, aren't I doing what the what the teachings tell me to do? And so that then um, that getting a feeling for the presence of bhavatana vibhavatana is so helpful, uh, and that's also why I could, just in this retreat I've been talking about learning how to apply effort free of self view. So the effort is guided by mindfulness and wisdom rather than me trying to concentrate, me trying to sit up straight, me trying to relax, me trying to, to, um, uh, you know, reflect on anicca dukkha anatta, but rather using the quality of mindfulness and wisdom free of self-view, free of conceit. Let that be the, the guiding principle, the, 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 the the motivating force for the practice, and then when effort is based on mindfulness and wisdom rather than on bhavatana vibhavatana, then the effort leads directly towards peacefulness and 
and ease rather than more dukkha. Okay. So, yes, sister. I didn't have a, an end point in mind. I did it for about three and a half years, from uh, August of 1983 to the end of 1986, beginning of 87, I think. So, uh, yeah, about three and a half years. I didn't have an end point. Um, I learned to be very patient. Yeah, because uh, you, um, yeah, as I said, you, you, there isn't a comfortable posture, so you you find yourself very. Um, well, if, if you work with it, then there's a, a, a continual uh, need to just be open to what's being experienced in the present, and you're not waiting for it to be over to get to some other place where that discomfort isn't, because it's going to be there too. <laughs> So uh, it's I think what people who experience chronic pain they, there's something they're challenged with all the time. That's what that it isn't going to end. So you have to to find a way of of living with it and, and uh, working with it, and not waiting for it to be over or or maneuvering or manipulating to try and get it to go away. Um, uh, yeah. Also, you, you learn to arouse a lot of energy because you're sleepy most of the time. And then also your vanity helps in that respect, because particularly if you're sitting in a room for lots of other people, you don't want to be falling asleep in front of everyone. So you use your vanity to offset your your um, dullness. So that, uh, that being vain can be quite helpful in that respect. Like, don't want to look bad, so sit up straight, you know, be wakeful. Um, uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't have an end point, but it was where I, I realized I was just. Uh, t- so taking on more and more and doing more and more things and that rather than simplifying my life I, was, I felt like I was just overstuffed with all these practices I was doing and that um, uh, I'd, I'd sort of forgotten the, the basic principle of the, the samana life is simplicity and there's all this stuff I was, I was doing uh, carrying around I was a, a super strict vegetarian and I had all kinds of um, sort of daily pujas I was doing, and all sorts of stuff. It was just I felt like one of those overfed geese, you know, those poor geese that are stuffed for making foie gras, and they, uh, you know, just bulgy with all these practices, this all this kind of good spiritual stuff I was doing. And it's like, well, I felt I totally lost sight of the what the the renunciate life, you know, all this stuff I'm doing to be a renunciate. It's like, wait a yeah. What's wrong with this picture? This, all these, uh, you know, I've got a few possessions, but all these cartloads of practices that I'm, I'm carrying around. So it, w- it was really striking to me. It was just before the winter retreat of 87. And, I, and I, when Lumpur Sumedha was... Um, he, the, where, where the temple is now, there used to be the old Dhamma Hall, the, the old school gymnasium, and he had Lumpur lived in a couple of rooms at the end of that building. I remember to chatting with him there one day, and I said, "I've decided to give up all my ascetic practices." And I thought he was going to, going to say, "Oh, you know, oh well, if you must, you know, but you've done a good job, lad. You know, you've really put in sincere effort. But you know, it's probably good to put these things aside. But you know, well done." But he didn't say that at all. He said, "At last!" <laughs> <laughs> really, it was quite a delivery. It was. Sort of, like he was waiting for me to get the point that there's more more stuff to be doing it was not yeah more sort of important spiritual things to be carting around was not really the point um so oh that's not what I was expecting <laughs> but uh it but it got through I thought, oh right, okay, there's a message there, and then yeah, we talked about it and 
and he uh, he had been waiting for me to get the point, but just leaving it to me to figure out on my own rather than him sort of spelling out like, you know, "What are you doing all this stuff for? You know, does it really help?" So, in terms of the the sitters' practice, though, that uh, I found that uh, particularly if you're in a a, a retreat situation, um, then uh, it's uh, it's really helpful, and you don't have any res- sort of administrative responsibilities. So living in a retreat and being a junior person, then I found that, that then it really it really worked. It was ex- very directly supportive to the to the practice. So oftentimes, yeah, I wouldn't be that sleepy during the day. You just you know you just because of doing a lot of formal practice, you you just didn't need that much sleep. And so sometimes, uh, and my my usual practice would be at the end of the evening sitting, I would just stay up and uh, and and so keep meditating until I felt sleepy, and then I'd lean against the wall and you know doze off for however long, um, and then you wake up in the morning. But it, uh, when uh, um, it was a it was retreat time. Uh, and there wasn't, you know, very few visitors or very little activity. I found that I would often be uh, just naturally awake till eleven or eleven thirty or midnight, and then I'd lean against the wall for a couple of hours and then wake up like at two o'clock or half past two and be sort of okay, ready to go. And so, um, particularly before I came here to Amravati, when I was living at Harnam for a couple of years during the winter retreats there, it's a very small community, only like five or six people snow all over the landscape about sort of three visitors a week it was very very quiet very still and so in that situation it was great because also when you slept um you know your sleep was quite shallow you didn't really need to blink out very much at all and sometimes i would even find that i was actually aware of, that i was sleeping you know that you're oh <laughs> that, <laughs> you know, my, my breathing has changed it's like, it feels like i'm asleep here and so the the level of, uh, I mean, I'm not boasting, it's just that's how it turned out, because everything was so quiet, so still, and you didn't have to engage. So that not lying down and not going into deep sleep states was actually supportive of an ongoing mindfulness and, and energy. And so I only really needed at that time to, to sleep, you know, three or a maximum of four hours a day, maybe even less, and quite comfortable with that. But then coming to live here at Amravati, having <laughs> a lot of a lot of things to be doing and trying to keep that going in the midst of of uh, uh, every a lot of everyday activity, a lot of engagement. I was the monastery secretary for a long time and and helping with building projects and so on and so forth. So then it was really quite uh, uphill uh, struggle. So if you see photographs of me at that time, it's definitely this <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Drooping quality that uh, was the Siddha's practice did not really go very well with life in Amravati. So, um, yeah, I did it for about a year and a half after I came here, and it was at the end of that time that I just thought. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, as I said, Lumpur was very encouraging of me to drop the whole thing. <laughs> it was weird lying down after three and a half years of not lying down at all. It felt really strange. <laughs> What's this weird sensation? It didn't take long to get used to it, but it was it was kind of weird at first. Anyway, to continue. Dependent origination links eleven and twelve Jati Jara Marana Sokaparideva Dukkha Domanasu Payasa. The last two links are birth, jati, and aging and death, jara marana which includes sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Sokaparideva Dukkha Domana Supayasa. In this, uh, it's very frequently used in Lumposamera's Dhamma talks. <laughs> in this system of symbolism, birth is the point of no return. You've committed to the path of some particular action, and there is no turning back. Once the baby is born, life is there, and the baby will need to be looked after. Prior to birth, there is still the possibility of turning back. Birth symbolizes the point of no return. After that, life has to be followed through to its completion. So it's symbolizing that sense of full commitment. You've actually bought the object now. You know, you've, you've actually you've spoken to, to uh, 
that person on that angry impulse, or you've you've um, yeah, uh, you've made that that change, that choice, and so then it can't be uh, undone. So it's that quality of commitment, that irreversible point. A simple example is eating. You enjoyed your food, and the thought then arises, that was delicious. The recognition that you are already full is put to one side, and the mind focuses on the pleasant feeling, Vedana, of deliciousness. That leads to craving, Tanha. Ooh, I wonder if there's any left over. This leads to Upadana, clinging, buying into the impulse to act on the craving. The next thing you know, you're helping yourself to another portion. We are now well into becoming territory, quote-unquote. The world has shrunk down to the food on your plate. There's a me plus a desired object and the promise of pleasure that will come from getting that object. The whole universe has got very small and simple. You help yourself to more food and you sit down and the only thing that matters is the good thing, quote-unquote, that you're about to taste. This is the essence of bhava, becoming. You eat your extra food and the mind is enjoying it, but even as you're finishing it, the mind starts to think that it didn't really need that food and why are you eating it and you're overweight already and you said you weren't going to do this and here you are doing it again. You sat down to eat a meal and then, having got lost in the craving for more pleasure, there was the birth moment. No turning back. You can't unchew a meal. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. This is the catastrophe of the book's title. Again, I'm not reading anybody's mind. This thing is probably familiar territory for almost all of us. Becoming almost invariably leads to jati, birth, to suddenly realizing, in this example, oh dear, one of them tasted good, but I just finished my 14th. I can feel indigestion coming on. You know, that sense of, oh, oh look, all these biscuits are making the plate untidy. <laughs> I better, better tidy this up. Or, oh, the, oh dear, this, um, the, uh, this, this jar, is, it's not level. I better level things up in the jar, maybe another little spoonful to make sure it's nice and smooth inside the jar. I mean, this is, uh, again, I'm not, I'm not spying on anyone. This is how we operate so easily. Birth, quote-unquote, is not talking about physical birth in this instance, but rather a psychological birth, the point of no return where we've created karma and there's no going back. Just as once a child is born, there is no turning back. Once our situation has been born, we have to live through the whole lifespan of its legacy, whatever that entails. And any condition that has been invested in, invariably, inexorably, goes towards Sokaparideva Dukkha Dolmanasubhayasa, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. Ego death, in other words. So, familiar territory. Having overeaten, you try to meditate. The heart is heavy and the body feels tired. Oh, why did I do this to myself? This is so uncomfortable. I feel so embarrassed. This is the dukkha experience. If there's ignorance, then we won't learn from the experience. We just get lost in regret, self-hatred or self-justification. If we buy into that dukkha experience, we create the conditions to repeat the same thing. We end up feeling insecure, lonely, alienated, frazzled, inconsolable. What happens then? Weirdly, ironically and sadly, and unconsciously, the mind recalls the last time it felt good, which was when the world shrank and there was the guarantee that we were going to get that good thing. Back at the Baba moment. So even though we thought we'd learned our lesson and would never do that again, the seeds were sown for the next round. The next time we have that kind of dukkha feeling, we'll follow the same pattern because what we want is that bhava experience. That's the drug of choice, whether it's another snack or another relationship or signing up for another meditation retreat. It's not a rational process. The driving force is ignorance, avicca. Because we're not seeing clearly, the process keeps repeating. The rational mind says, this is really uncomfortable. I'm never going to do this again. This is silly. But when the heart is lost in that dukkha state, feeling insecure and fragile and incomplete, then the rational mind doesn't have a vote. So, this is the practice. We understand the process of dukkha. We learn to bring awareness to the feeling of dukkha. We learn to know dukkha, but not get lost in it. When we feel fragile or desolate, when we, uh, if we have developed awareness, 
mindfulness and wisdom, we then recognize that feeling, the frazzled, désolé feeling, for what it is. Oh, I know this. Better be careful. This describes one of the exit points from the cycle. The Buddha said that suffering, dukkha, ripens in one of two ways. It either ripens in confusion, i.e. more dukkha, or it ripens in search. And that's from the Anguttara Nikaya, Book of the Sixes, Sutta number 63. The word search, as it's used in this sutta, means there must be some alternative to this. I don't have to follow this. Now, what's the way out? So that represents faith. And again, in, when I go into this in more detail later on in the, the chapter on the first exit point from the cycle, that, that intuition, like this can't be the whole story. There has to, like with any kind of addiction, there are people who don't smoke. There are people who don't, who don't crave alcohol. There are people who uh, are free of this particular obsession. So therefore, it must be possible for me to, to be free of that too. So that sadhar or faith, that sense of this is, it's possible to be free of this. Now this is a very important area of Dhamma practice to explore and to develop. No matter how deeply we might be addicted, no matter how strong our habits, the heart can always be free. Even if those habits have been there for a lifetime, that recognition of there must be a way, quote-unquote, represents the faith that the heart can be free of this dependency. It can be free of this addiction. That's the possibility. I feel this is a very, very valuable for all of us to contemplate. So it's also related to the uh, kind of what we're talking about, Buddha nature, and that uh, that sort of capacity for for all beings to be enlightened. I would say that no matter how strong the addictions might be, or how compulsive and how caught up the mind might be, that. Uh, that, rec- that that faith or that recognition of yeah it's possible to be free of this obviously that's going to vary from uh, one person to another and, and the if there's you know, injuries or illnesses or, 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 or physical difficulties that just make that capacity for reflective thought uh, very uh, uh, hard to access or, or very difficult then then that's part of the picture but generally speaking that uh, for for most people, that is a, that's a possibility, and that's why you know, monasteries exist. And and as also just after the Buddha's enlightenment, his first thought was, you know, this is too subtle, this is too challenging. You know that um, living beings are too obsessed. There's no point in me trying to teach, and so he was disinclined to teach. But then when uh, the Brahma Sahampati came to the Buddha and said, please, you know, Brahma Chaloka Dipati Sahampati, that that. Uh, invitation for the Dhamma talk that comes from that incident where the Brahma Sahampati came to the Buddha and said there are beings with a lot of dust in their eyes and beings with just a little dust in their eyes so please for the sake of those with just a little dust share the understanding that you have and so then the Buddha cast his vision around the world and saw yep this Brahma is correct there's some beings with a little dust in their eyes and so um, perhaps they can understand and so we're the, the happy grateful recipients of that that um, suggestion, uh, request by the Brahma Sahampati. And uh, it, it also reflects how yeah, we can be really lost, we can be uh, deeply sort of distracted and, and in a, uh, caught up in obsessions for, for many, many years, but the heart can be free. And I thought, this is a way of finishing today, I would share with you the story of Sarakani, the Sakyan, who was a drunk. And... Um, lived in Kapilawatu, was a famous local alcoholic, falling down drunk in, in Kapilawatu. And um, this particular, this is from the Connected Discourses about Stream Entry, uh, Sutta number 24. At Kapilawatu, now on that occasion, Sarakani the Sakyan had died, and the Blessed One had declared him to be a stream enterer, no longer bound to the netherworld, fixed in destiny, with enlightenment as his destination. Thereupon, a number of Sakyans, having met and assembled, deplored this, grumbled and complained about it, saying, It's wonderful indeed. It's amazing indeed, sir. Now who here won't be a stream-enterer when the Blessed One has declared Sarakani, the Sakyan, after he died, to be a stream-enterer, with enlightenment as his destination? Sarakani, the Sakyan, was too weak for the training. He drank intoxicating drink. So he was a, seemingly a very famous local boozer. And, uh, and I thought, 
He was a stream entrer? How could that be? It's like, anyone could be a stream entrer nowadays. You know, it's a, <laughs> if Sarakani, it's like, so that they, they grumbled and complained and so criticized the Buddha. Then Mahanama the Sakyan, who was a relative of the Buddha and the, the ruler of the Sakyans, came to the Buddha and um, reported this matter to him. And uh, then the Buddha goes into a long explanation. He says, Mahanama, when a lay follower has gone for refuge over a long time to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, how could he go to the nether world, the lower realms? For if one speaking rightly were to say of anyone, he was a lay follower who had gone to refuge over a long time to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, it is of Sarakani, the Sakyan, that one could rightly say this. Mahanama, Sarakani, the Sakyan, had gone for refuge over a long time to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, so how could he go to the nether world? And uh, this is a, this is a sutta that causes quite a bit of doubt for people. They, oh, so I could. <laughs> so, uh, so Ajahn, this means I could keep drinking and then just sort of have a lot of faith and <laughs> take refuge, and then I'm going to be. It's all going to be good at the end, right? <coughs> so that's uh, if you're a gambler, that's the way the mind might work. But. Um, the uh, the Buddha goes in, again. You can you can read this um, sutta sutta number uh, twenty four in the Sotapati Sangita, um, and the Buddha points out you know having uh, having faith in the Buddha Dhamma and Sangha, um, it's not even not even that much is necessary. He said here Mahanama, some person does not possess confirmed confidence in the Buddha the Dhamma and the Sangha. He is not one of joyous wisdom nor of swift swift wisdom. Has not attained liberation. However. He has these five things, the faculty of faith, uh, the faculty of energy, the faculty of mindfulness, the faculty of concentration, the faculty of wisdom. And he has sufficient faith in the Tathagata, sufficient devotion to him. This person too, Mahanama, is one who does not go to hell, the animal realm, or the domain of ghosts, to the plane of misery, the bad destinations, the netherworld. And then he makes a really interesting comment. He says, even these great sal trees, like the trees around them, even these great sal trees, Mahanama, uh, if they could uh, understand what is well spoken and what is badly spoken, then I would declare these great sal trees to be stream enterers, no longer bound to the netherworld, fixed in destiny with enlightenment as their destination. How much more than Sarakani the Sakyan? Mahanama, Sarakani the Sakyan, fulfilled the training at the time of his death. So, it's not just a matter of drinking. And having uh, having faith, but also there's a, there needs to be sufficient barometer in the mix so that uh, that comes to the surface at the at the uh, at least at the last moment. So again, I acknowledge that that particular sutta causes doubt and questioning and, and hope for some people. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's it's here in the the suttas. I I feel it's worthy of contemplation, but it also points out that. Um, that there's a condition called terminal lucidity. So it's not just if you're drunk, but also people who have been in a coma for a long time and have a very heavily compromised faculties. It's not, uh, terminal lucidity is something that's been noticed for centuries and centuries, a long time. People have been really badly injured or been in a coma for a long time. It's, it's uh, not uncommon that just before they die, that their faculties clarify and they're able to engage or to speak or to connect with the, the people uh, around them. And that clarity, all the, the things that were, were clogging up the system of the, the, the physical body and, the, and the, uh, the, the, the kind of the workings of the brain were maybe heavily compromised by the, the illness or the injuries. But it seems to be that as the consciousness starts to let go or let, be less identified with the body and its uh, its limitations, then there can be this period of clarity for maybe a few hours um, where the, the mind is able to function without the obstructions coming from the, the compromised or the sickly body. And um, uh, that, and this, the, uh, uh, I know this from direct experience. My grandmother was uh, in a pretty much uh, comatose for the last four years of her life. And then the day before she died, she hadn't, my mother would go and visit her every week in the nursing home drive all the way over from Kent to the nursing home in, in Sussex where my grandmother was. And then the day before my grandmother died, she uh, turned towards my mother, opened her eyes and said, thank you. And then she died the next day. And she hadn't uttered a word or engaged in, in, in four years. And then something came to the surface. Of, 
got to the surface and and the uh, uh, that that kind of clarity. So even if Sarakani was deeply soaked in alcohol and confused, and as the the body is dying, it's and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but the effect of that that uh, alcohol soaked system with uh, as the the body is uh, is fading and the consciousness is being less and less influenced by the physical body, then it could be that that clarity was able to have its good result right at that last moment. That gives you a few things to ponder. And I'll leave it there for today. Mm-hmm. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.